What was Hugh Nibley thinking about when he landed his Jeep on the beach on D-Day? This is one of six episodes in our podcast series based on the book entitled Hugh Nibley Observed. On the dawn of one of the most daring and dangerous events of World War II, the typical soldier would hardly be thinking deep thoughts about puzzling intellectual problems. But then again, Hugh Nibley was not the typical World War II soldier. In the book Hugh Nibley Observed, Jack Welch recounts the story as follows. At first light on June 6, 1944, the first of many Allied landing craft began hitting the beaches of Normandy. At Utah Beach, 12 men dangling from one of the emerging jeeps cheered their driver on as they surged up from beneath the surface of the chilly English Channel waters. That driver, an Army intelligence officer with a PhD in ancient history from the University of California at Berkeley, was none other than Hugh W. Nibley at age 34. While preparing for the invasion, Hugh had visited several antiquarian bookstores in London walking out with armloads of Arabic and Greek literary treasures. He had also, on the sly, slipped a copy of the Book of Mormon into one of the 55 pockets in his Regimental Intelligence Corps fatigues. It was right there at Utah Beach, Hugh still vividly recalls, as we were a couple of feet underwater, that it really hit me how astonishing the Book of Mormon truly is. It had never occurred to me before, but all I could think of all that day was how wonderful this Book of Mormon was. Judged by any standard, the Book of Mormon is nothing ordinary. So it seems only right that possibly the most illustrious scholar yet to have investigated the Book of Mormon should have become fascinated with it in no ordinary way. Since Utah Beach, Hugh Nibley was never again the same, nor was Book of Mormon scholarship. A few years later, Nibley published Lehi in the Desert, the first of many books he would write on the Book of Mormon. His next book, An Approach to the Book of Mormon, was written for the church as the lesson manual for adult priesthood quorums. The trajectory described by Hugh Nibley in Lehi in the Desert takes us from Jerusalem southward through the Arabian Peninsula, then eastward through the desert to Bountiful, where Lehi's family would launch a ship for the Promised Land in the Americas. Nibley's pioneering research provided the foundation for additional discoveries by other researchers generally confirming and enriching his early hunches. After leaving Jerusalem, the first major stop of Lehi's party was at the Valley of Lemuel. Nibley noted not only the ancient custom Lehi followed in giving a name to the valley's features, as listed in 1 Nephi chapter 2, verses 6 and 9 through 10. He also discovered that the form of Lehi's expression followed the conventions of Arabic Heshida, the oldest actual poetry of the desert. It was not until 1999 that George Potter made the first plausible proposal for a specific Arabian location for the Valley of Lemuel. Consistent with scripture, the river runs continually. A claim for such an improbably flowing stream in arid Arabia could not have been checked until well after 1830. Many of the features of the site also seem to correspond to elements of Lehi's dream of the Tree of Life in 1 Nephi chapter 8 which he had while the family was camped here. Although some had suggested that Lehi's party traveled along the western shore of the Red Sea during their southward journey, Nibley correctly concluded that Lehi's party followed the Gaza branch of the Frankincense Trail on the eastern side. In Semitic languages, the words for mountains and borders are synonyms. Thus, when the Book of Mormon says that Lehi's family traveled by the borders or in the borders, 
It is the same as saying by the mountains or in the mountains, as in 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 5. Remarkably consistent with the description of Lehi's journey in the Book of Mormon, the split of the Hejaz mountain range defines a trail consisting of two segments, one that is near the Red Sea and the other that is nearer the Red Sea. At a place called Nahum, the family stopped their southward journey, buried Ishmael, and then turned eastward toward Bountiful. Nibley carefully observed that unlike other desert locations that Lehi encountered and named for himself, the Book of Mormon's statement that Ishmael's burial place was called Nahum in 1 Nephi chapter 16 verse 34 indicates that this place already had a name before the traveling party arrived. In perhaps one of the most astonishing archaeological discoveries relating to the Book of Mormon, Kent Brown learned about an altar discovered at a location known to be a burial site. This site dates back to Lehi's era and stands near his most likely trail. The altar is inscribed with a reference to the tribe of Nim. Consistent with this location as an appropriate burial place for Ishmael, hundreds of burial mounds going back beyond Lehi's time have been found. Significantly, the roots of the Semitic term Nim, transliterated in English with various combinations of vowels, indicates mourning, consoling, and complaining with hunger, consistent with descriptions given in 1 Nephi chapter 16, verse 35. In addition to confirming archaeological finds, scholar Russ T. Christensen located a place named Nehem on a German map from 1763. Warren and Michaela Aston have since located other maps and pre-Islamic documents describing a name and a place corresponding to the Book of Mormon, Nehem. To our knowledge, no other known place with the same or similar name in the Middle East has yet been found. Remarkably, the spot indicated on maps and documents seems to be just where the Book of Mormon requires it to be, at the juncture where Lehi's trail would have turned eastward. Though Latter-day Saint scholars were not aware of the existence of an ancient place called Nehem until long after Nibley first traced the trail of Lehi, Nibley correctly deduced both the approximate location of the place where the party would have turned eastward and the existence of an unlikely paradise corresponding to Bountiful on the seashore where their desert journey would have ended. Quote, the party struck off through the worst desert of all, where they did wade through much affliction, to emerge in a state of almost complete exhaustion into a totally unexpected paradise by the sea. There is such a paradise on the Kara Mountains, on the southern coast of Arabia. To reach it by moving nearly eastward from the Red Sea, one would have to turn east on the 19th parallel. End quote. Scholars have since argued that the Dofar region of Oman is a plausible location where Lehi's party would have come to the coast after following the path from Nahum nearly eastward. Nibley observed that the discovery of this rare green thumbprint on the ancient location of Bountiful, where the humid winds from the Indian Ocean brought moisture to the Arabian coast, came as a great surprise when it was first discovered in 1838, eight years after the Book of Mormon was published. Supporting Nibley's conclusion that the discovery of such a place was at complete odds with the learned wisdom of Joseph Smith's day, he notes that when German explorer Adolf von Reed gave a glowing description of these mountains in 1843, the whole learned world simply refused to believe him. Nephi speaks of wild honey in the land of Bountiful, and the Dofar region is one of the few places he would have found it. Honey jars from that area have been discovered and are housed in the Museum of Salala, 
that are nearly 2,000 years old. Nephi would have required a convenient source of ore to create tools and materials for his boat. BYU researchers discovered iron deposits on surface features of the area some years ago. More recently, actual slag from copper and iron smelting has been found, confirming that this readily available ore was exploited in ancient times. Who would expect a fertile coast site with available timber and iron ore to build and launch a ship on the southern coast of the Arabian Desert? All of these discoveries, built on the pioneering clues provided by Hugh Nibley, not only increase evidence for the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, but also help us make sense of details that its prophetic editors purposefully included in the text for our benefit, but that we had little hope of understanding until Hugh Nibley came along. In conversations with prominent academics, Nibley did not shy away from discussing his views on the remarkable nature of the Book of Mormon, as demonstrated in this letter by Nibley, published for the first time in Hugh Nibley Observed. After Nibley thanked an eminent scholar of Judaism, Jacob Neuschner, for sending a copy of one of his recent articles, Nibley abruptly launched into an impromptu testimony of the Book of Mormon. What intrigues me at present about the Book of Mormon, independent of all other conditions, is the immense scope and detail of the story under the deceptively, even naively simple first appearance. Thanking you again for your kindness, I remain yours truly. Signed, Hugh Nibley. Hugh Nibley's deep interest in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ led him to many discoveries of importance to Latter-day Saints. The book Hugh Nibley Observed tells the story of the man and his work. For more information, visit interpreterfoundation.org forward slash books. Stay tuned for part two in this series on Hugh Nibley Observed. Thanks for listening.